0: get to finish our family series this morning, and I'm I'm very grateful to be able to preach on parenting here, not because I figured it out, okay, but because it's always on my heart. And so the title this morning uh, might initially make some of you guys squirm, like the thought of parenting for a trillion years is uh, tiring, dare I say depressing. (laughs) But this is not a sermon on helicopter parenting, okay. This is the idea that Parenting should be done with eternity in mind, that we don't just parent for the next however many years our children are on earth, but we parent with the thought of forever. And parenting is about more than just setting our kids up for success or, you know, seeing them become healthy, well-adjusted adults who function in society, although we hope at least that happens, right? It's about more than that. It's about more than behavior modification, just having kids that sit there and do the right stuff and don't embarrass us. Parenting is discipleship. In the Bible, it is discipleship. It's probably the, 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 the tightest microcosm of discipleship. You are trapped in that house with those people. And as a parent, we're called to disciple our children. So to illustrate the eternal effects of parenting, I want to try something this morning. And I want you to raise your hand if... You became a Christian in the context of a Christian home. So, you know, you, you received Christ, you trusted in Jesus as Savior, and your family was Christian, at least one of your parents at the time when you became a Christian. Raise your hand if that's true for you. Okay, keep your hand raised, look around the room, and just check that out. I don't know of a mission field with a higher rate of evangelism. That's good, you can put it down. But that just goes to show you the effect of a Christian parent. Now, We all know as parents that we are not in control and God is sovereign over salvation and our kids' hearts and whether they follow him or not. But that just shows you that oftentimes God uses Christian parents to produce Christians and to disciple them. Ultimately, God's in control of that. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. So go ahead and find uh, the first book in the Bible. So go back to the beginning and we're going to be in chapter 22. So make your way there. And a parenting sermon from Genesis, I think, should begin with a flashback to Genesis 1. Because after God created Adam and Eve, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That was his command to them. That was the creation mandate, to have children and fill the earth with little image bearers, people who represent God. But before they can even start multiplying, something happens in chapter 3, which is a game changer. And that is that they disobey God. They fall into sin. And once they do that, relationships are fractured. The whole universe is affected by sin. And of course, we have husband and wife at each other. We have siblings at each other. We have parenting affected by the fall. Sin has changed everything. Think about it this way. The very first example of parenting in the Bible, Adam and Eve raising Cain and Abel. We all know how that turned out. Okay, so, the parenting track record from the very beginning, 0 oh 1. And parenting is hard, it is, it's difficult. And we can look all the way back to the beginning to see that. And the reason it's so hard is because we're all sinners. Parents are sinners, children are sinners. We're all sinners. And I think you've picked that up from our series so far. When it comes to this idea of family, sin has affected everything. Well, as Genesis continues, families continue to multiply. And they're doing what God told them to do. There's one particular family whose multiplication is absolutely vital for God's plan. God's plan for humanity is centered around this family, Abraham and Sarah. And God says, I'm going to use you to start a whole new nation. Except it's hard to start a nation when you can't even have one child. And so they have some struggles in 30, 40, 50 60, 70, 80, 90 birthdays come and go, and they have no children. And their, their, their family math did not include multiplication. I just want to pause for a moment. I want to say that there may be some in here this morning who you're a couple, you want to have children, like you know that that's their, your heart. For whatever reason, God hasn't allowed that yet. He hasn't provided you with children. And I want to say that Abraham and Sarah, they understand. They understood And I don't know what God's got in the future for you, but I know that sermons like this, I know that family series can be kind of painful. It can be a reminder. I just want to say that you're not in a holding pattern until that happens. God's got something for you. I also want to say that the creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve was actually given to humanity to raise image bearers. And as a parent, as a former youth worker, I know that it takes more than just parents to lead children to Christ, to lead children to a healthy relationship with God. So I just want to say all of you, we're all in this together. If you put into practice the principles that I'm going to talk about, we'll see children in this church and the children in your lives, whether they're nephews or nieces, you will see them love Jesus. So please know that this is a group project, that we are all in this together, but I understand it's sensitive for some individuals. Back to Abraham and Sarah. So the Bible says that when their bodies were as good as dead, that's the biblical language. It says when Abraham and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead, God provided a child. And all of a sudden, Sarah gets pregnant. And she has this long-awaited baby. And they are so overjoyed that they call him Laughter. Can you imagine having a name like Laughter? I see some bullying going on. But that's his name, Laughter. Okay, He's, It is this bright ray of hope in this family which has waited for so long. Now, as we come to Genesis chapter 22 and we look at this, this is about 13 years maybe. It's like into the parenting journey for Abraham and Sarah. They're they're just starting the teen years, okay? So they have a teenager. And now Abraham has the greatest parenting challenge he has ever faced. So why don't you read with me chapter 22 of Genesis, just verse 1 and 2. We're going to take this in kind of little pieces as we go through the narrative, all right? So Genesis 22, read with me verse 1 and 2, follow along. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's stop there. This is a parenting nightmare. Every day I have parenting quandaries, like literally every day. What do I do, God? How do I parent these wonderful, amazing daughters you've given me who are in their teen years? I've never had a quandary like this. I've never faced, I mean, the, the idea of offering your child as a human sacrifice is disturbing, both morally, theologically, and that level of shock that you feel and that I feel as we read this is exactly the point. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. We'll talk about why, why in the world God would would ask this. But can you imagine with me this morning, Abraham's shock, his confusion. And what is he saying to God? He's saying, God, this is my son. He says, my only son. That's how the scripture refers to him. And yes, he's already had a child, but that child is not in the picture. It's only Isaac. He says, "Is my only son. He's the son that I love, my beloved son. And not only that, it's not just that he's my son, God. He is the the very person that you told me all the people are going to come through. Like you promised it's going to be Isaac, not somebody else. So God, what, what are you asking for? And What is going on? This is my son who you promised will have children. God makes it clear to us as the readers that this is a test. It says he's testing Abraham. So this was never meant to be a child sacrifice. It was a test. But Abraham couldn't know that. He, he couldn't know that at this point. And did you ever notice that when God tests us, sometimes he goes right for the jugular. He, he, he attacks the thing that is most precious to us, our deepest love, the thing that probably runs the risk of taking his place in our hearts. And God is testing Abraham. Let's read verses 3 through 5 and continue in, in the story here. Verse three, 3 through 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, Moriah is about 45 miles away. It's a 3 days walk. And I I can only imagine as each step that Abraham takes, what is he thinking, you know? Maybe he's thinking with every step, he's just recounting the promises of God. And and he's he's remembering through Isaac, your descendants will come. Through Isaac, your descendants will come. And he just keeps saying to himself, God, this is your promise. This is your promise. So even as I obey you, this is is the promise I'm holding on to. It's got to be a torturous journey walking these three days, knowing what he's about to do. And then he says something very intriguing to his servants. Did you notice what he says? I don't know if I caught this the first however many times I read this scripture when I was younger. But he says this. He says, stay here and I and the boy will go over there and worship and will return. Abraham never seems to doubt that him and Isaac are going to return alive and well. That's his. his, At least that's his language. And Hebrews 11 gives us a little more insight. Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 says about Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So I, I don't think Abraham could, could know exactly what was going to happen. There's no way that he knows what's going to happen, like we do when we're reading. But I think that Abraham thought, well, whatever happens, even, even if the worst happens, even if I actually sacrifice my child... God's going to raise him again. He's going to raise him from the dead because he has specifically said to me, through Isaac, you're going to have children. Through Isaac, the nation's going to be made. So he figures even if God requires or asks Isaac's life, he's going to give it back. So he's got this this faith. And it's this resolute, galvanized faith that, that Abraham exhibits, and Isaac gets to see firsthand as this father-son trip takes a really dark turn. So read with me verses 6 through 8 here. And I just want you to notice as we read, the narrative starts to include more detail. It's as if the time is slowing down as we get close to the event. So verses 6 through 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And so time is slowing down. It's like this intimate conversation. Dad, where's the animal for the sacrifice? I don't think this is Isaac's first rodeo. He Abraham regularly worships God, and I believe that with his children, often he worships God. So this glaring omission is not lost on Isaac. He's like, Dad, we're forgetting something. There is a sacrifice. And I wonder, are your children used to worship enough that they would notice a glaring omission? So if you came to church and the Bible wasn't opened, if you came to church and Jesus' name was never mentioned, would your children say, that was weird, like we didn't even open the Bible today? Are your children used to the rhythms of worship and what it looks like to worship God, that they would ask a question like that? But what do you say if you're Abraham? So Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? What do you say about that? You know, that's a, that's a very awkward conversation. And what does he do? He has this, this faith, this strong, resolute faith. But I don't believe it's the kind of faith that is cold or unmoved. Like, I'm not affected by this. I believe at this point, he's probably already got tears welling up in his eyes. As he looks at his son, and he musters all the sincerity and compassion he can, he says, God will provide. God's going to do something. And he says this word, this phrase, God will provide, which becomes not just a theme for this whole narrative, which it does, but it becomes a name of God that, that we love, right? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And so this is a special thing that he says to his son. Let's read just verse 9. So read with me verse 9. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. What's interesting to me here is what's not said what's not written in the pages of Scripture. And I have so many questions with this story. I don't know if if you're like this, but I mean, all the way back to, does Abraham tell Sarah what the father-son trip is all about? If he does, how does she react to that? I wish I I I could be there for that conversation, if they had it. Or as Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide. Does Isaac start to connect the dots, like, he's going to provide how? Is he requiring this of me? One thing we don't see here is Isaac struggling, Isaac rebelling, Isaac running away or fighting. And you have to remember, Abraham is over 100 years old. Isaac is just in his early teens. So I kind of think he's probably winning that wrestling match. He's probably winning that foot race. So the only way that Isaac is tied, placed on the altar is if he is willing. And that says something. It does. It says something. Now, I parent teens, and I know that many times when I tell them to do something, they think it is not logical. They think it is ludicrous. They look at me, and they'll even say sometimes, like, that's, that's ridiculous. You don't understand, right? If I suggested something like this to my children, they would not be willing participants, I can promise you. And I might be in jail. But there's something different about this scenario. Isaac Isaac I believe understands that God is requiring a unique thing of him that that right now this is strangely surprisingly God's direct revelation and it's his will for him. It's what he's supposed to do. And he's learned obedience from his father and so he willingly goes along with it. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Very hard to imagine. I can imagine the conversation here, you know, Isaac, you know that your mom and I love you. You know how long we waited for you. You know that we believe God's got amazing plans for you. Here's what God has clearly told us. And I love you, Isaac. I love God even more. That conversation must have been intimate tears. And then we come to verse 10, Genesis 22:10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Let's stop there. And right here, we have time screeching to a halt. We have all of a sudden, I mean, all the detail of even reaching for the knife, it's like we have now come to a halt. Every second counts. Will Abraham pass the test? Will he be found faithful? Verse 11 through 14, read it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram. And offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham passed the test. And God wasn't looking at his knife, he was looking at his heart. He was looking at the fact that Abraham submitted. And so that day, that faithful day, Isaac learned something very critical when it comes to the parent-child relationship. Something that our children have to see in us as parents and even see in you if you're not a parent. And that is that the number one priority in Abraham's heart was God. It wasn't Isaac. It wasn't anything else. It was God because the only way you do that is if you love God most. If you decide I'm gonna obey God even though it seems crazy, he's calling me to do this. Parenting is not child-centered. It's not parent-centered either. It's God centered. That's effective parenting, where we make God the center of our life, where Jesus Christ is our everything. Parenting's about displaying our love for God and about displaying God's love for our children. And I believe that probably that day, tears were streaming down Abraham's face, and that showed Isaac, I love you, Isaac. But the fact that his faith continued on showed Isaac something else. As much as I love you, as much as you are my treasure, God is my treasure even more. That's something very critical for us. If we're going to parent for the next trillion years, if we're going to parent our children to prepare them for eternity, we have to first show our children that we love God most, that m- most of anything, we love God. If ever there was an only child who you'd be tempted to spoil, I, I think it's Isaac. I mean, you've waited a hundred years for this kid, right? Right? Just think about all of the toys in his playroom as they're waiting for him to be born. He's got everything from Lincoln Logs to Nintendo Switch. I mean, a hundred years of toys. They're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're so anticipating. You want to talk about a golden child? All the hopes for the nation of Israel rest on this kid, on this guy. And so, yeah, they loved him. Yes, they cherished him. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah told Isaac how special he was. He was special. But as special as he is and as treasured as he was, he was not their greatest treasure. And mom and dad, would your children say that about you? Would they say, you know, my, my parents love me, yes, but they love God even more? Would your kids look at you and, and, and by your life see you showing or displaying a love for God that's that, that supreme? I remember that Johnson & Johnson commercial, right? There it, it was a bunch of them, and the tagline was, having a baby changes everything. And it does. It really does. But it should not change our hearts towards God. It shouldn't change our priorities so that now our world is completely revolving around this being. Rather than worshiping God, if anything, children should cause our worship to well up and say, thank you, God, for this amazing gift that you've given me. I love you more because of this but isn't it hard, parents, because your life radically changes? Like before you have a baby, you can stay up till 2 in the morning if you want. And you go to bed at 7 p.m. if you want. And then pretty soon you don't have a choice. You know, and you're getting up every couple hours and all that stuff. And in this day, you know, of video baby monitors, which I think almost everyone has. I never had those things. Or European fancy strollers where you like one button, it's like, it's like a transformer, and then you like put it in your car. It's amazing. I've seen these things. In that world, it's hard not to make it all about our children. I mean, I just visited my brother. They, they just adopted a, an infant baby, a newborn. And they have a Keurig for their baby. It's like this little baby formula. You go up to it, you put the bottle, you push the button, and it comes out perfectly warmed, exactly the right temperature. Don't even need to test it on your wrist, I don't think. I mean, it's amazing, but it's easy for the world to be all about a baby, isn't it? All about your child. And for some couples, just the thought, the prospect of having a kid can, can become the center of our world. It can take over, right? And Abraham and Sarah understood that. And maybe you'd say, well, don't worry, pastor. My kids are not the center of, the, of my world. Like maybe at one point, but parenting's lost, lost its luster. I'm good now. <laughs> like, there's no way my parents are the center of my world. I'm just trying to survive this whole thing. And for you, I would say, well, then what is the thing that makes you most happy? What is the thing that you get really excited about? It might not be your kids, but it's probably something. And here's the crazy thing. You can fool a lot of people, but it's hard to pull one over on your kids. Because your children see you in your best, and they see you in your worst. They see you here in church singing things like, beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. We just sang that. And I hope that you sincerely mean that when you sing that. You can see that, but they also see you the rest of the week, and they see what you get really pumped about. They see what you really love. They know how excited dad gets when that sports game is on, and Cody Parkey is about ready to miss again. <laughs> Too soon? Sorry. <laughs> they see how you take care of your car. They... They see how much you love your new iPhone or your shopping or whatever. They hopefully see your love for their, your family. But do they see your love for God? Do they observe a person who is all about Christ? Yes, very imperfect. But they would say, you know what? My parents really love God. My dad has always been such an example to me. and Maybe not in the ways that you would expect. My dad's had a lot of struggles growing up. His upbringing is, I mean... Jerry Springer would be embarrassed. It's, it's bad. And uh, I think about him, and I've through the years I've seen him fall and get back up, and fall and get back up. And I have the privilege of seeing my dad as a teenager. I saw my dad be church disciplined from our church and then be restored. And you might not think that's a blessing, but I'll I'll tell you what that taught me. was my dad was willing to come up in front of that congregation and confess and repent the sin in his heart and the things that had taken the priority of his family and the things that had taken the priority of God. And that said something to me about his greatest love. And I just wonder, parents, are we showing our kids, even imperfectly, even when we're kind of a little bit of a disaster, are we showing our kids that Jesus means something to us? You know, it's not always a, a, a worldly thing. I shared last week that sometimes these are desires in our heart that, that well up and, and they take the place. They're idolatrous. We, we want these things more than we want God, more than we want Christ. Paul Tripp has a book uh, called The Age of Opportunity, and it's a, it's a great book. I recommend it to you, particularly if your kids are getting ready to go into the teen years, which is, according to him, the age of opportunity, okay? Okay. And this is a great book. In it, he he talks about some of the idols that we have as parents. What things take the place of God? When your kids look at you, what do they think that you're really about? And I mean, these are convicting. You'll see them uh, up on the screen here in a second. But the idol of comfort, and that, and usually you say you're basically saying things like, "My needs come first. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be, you know, I just want that when I come home from work. I just want to be comfortable." Maybe it's the idol of respect. You will respect me. And that becomes like what you really love even more than Jesus Christ. Or the idol of appreciation. I serve you children so that you appreciate me. And when you don't appreciate me, I'm kind of angry. These are convicting, right? Because I think all of us struggle with these things. Or the idol of success. You make us look good as children. So when you perform and when you do really really well in school, you make us look good. And kids can tell when that's your driving motivation, and the idol of control, you will do what I say. Now, I was just talking to somebody out in the comments between services, and I said, parenting teenagers is an exercise in losing control. That's what I believe it is. Because they get bigger, and you can't control them physically. They get bigger, and you can't control them in a lot of ways. And and, and that's the natural way God's designed it, for them to become independent. But that's hard to lose control. And at first, you start to panic, and you're like, I'm losing control. And then you realize, oh, that's kind of part of the, what God's designed to the point where you really have very little control when they're an adult and they're out on the own. But when you try to clamp down and control, it becomes this, this idol. And unfortunately, your kids can sometimes see that that's what you're really, really about. Parents, do you struggle with any of these? I mean, are any of these things convicting? If they take the reins in our life, we're not going to be able to honor God in those critical moments like Abraham did. We're not, because it's gonna be more about us and less about God. Our parenting will be short-sighted. It will not be parenting for the next trillion years. Well, how do we do that practically? How, how do we show our kids that God means something to us? A couple practical things from a pastor named Bob Russell, and the first one is attitude towards church. What is the attitude that you as parents have towards church? And you know, better or worse, the church represents God, and your, and your kids look at the way you handle church, the way you attend church, just your attitude towards it. And they associate that with your heart towards God. Now, I grew up in a home where we just went to church. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't a question. We couldn't, like, convince my parents not to go. We went to church. I remember this one time, and I think I probably remember it wrongly, but this is my memory, okay? (laughs) I shared a story uh, a while back about when we were on the way to church one time, my dad, me, and my two other oldest brothers in his dilapidated pickup truck, his work truck, which had a door that just came open sometimes. Just came open. So we went around a corner very slowly in the middle of town, but we went around a corner and the door popped open and whoop, there goes my one brother, whoop, there goes my second brother. And I'm holding on to the gear shift. My dad's like grabbing me and, and uh, this is how I remember. I remember him collecting us, putting them back in the truck and driving to church. I don't think we went home. Now, my mom says, no, Mark, no, we wouldn't have done that. We, we, we took you. I remember being in the foyer and having, like, my brothers had knee uh, rips in their, in their pants, and there was blood on their knees, and they just went in the bathroom and, like, cleaned it up, and then we went to church. That's how I remember it. Now, if it's not true, um, it wouldn't be that far out of reason, okay? My parents just went to church. This is what we did. And we had a pretty dysfunctional family at times. Don't get the wrong idea. But what I learned was church was part of the rhythm. It's just what you do as a family. Just, it's our worship to God. And so I grew up in that kind of home, and, and it's not hard for me to go to church. I'm kind of paid to do that too, but still, like, I, it's not hard for me because it's part of the rhythm. It's what I learned. And I remember my parents always serving in the church, Sunday school and choir and sound ministry and various things like that. And so for me, serving in the church was just what you do. And I just say, parent, if, you, if your attitude towards church is negative or it's ambivalent, haphazard, whatever, don't be surprised if your kids grow up and their attitude towards Christianity is haphazard or ambivalent or negative. How about atmosphere in the home? What is your atmosphere in the home? That's a way to show that you love God. Think about this, Deuteronomy 6 and 11, I encourage you to read those later today, great passages that teach us parents how to have conversations. It says, basically, when you lie down, when you rise, when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, pretty much there's no time that's off limits. Just talk about things with your kids, have conversations about God so you're watching a movie together, and the worldview is really worldly, like oppressive. You know what I'm talking about. It might be a subtle thing, but you're just feeling that as a parent, like, oh, my goodness. Maybe it's all about image, and you just want to t- tell your girls, like, okay, but pause the movie in the middle, and then discuss it. Kids really like this. When you pause a movie in the middle, and let's talk. Let's discuss this. So, like, yeah, this is so stupid. Um, but at least at least they'll know. Mom and Dad care about these things. Mom and Dad love me enough to talk about this they love god maybe you're driving in the car with your child and you know they have their earbuds in and stuff and that's okay sometimes i don't you know whatever but sometimes ask them to take them out and have a conversation with them and my advice would be parent before you when you know you're going to drive with your child just you and them think about what you're going to say beforehand uh, think about something you read in your bible or, or your devotions or something and then plan to talk about that and say hey i read this the other day because I found that when I don't have a plan, sometimes it's like it's a couple words and it's like, oh, whatever, you know. Um, so that's the idea. Wherever you are, talk about the Lord. Have these conversations. That's atmosphere in the home. And then the third one is adherence to God's commands. And the thing about this is Isaac learned that his dad obeyed God. He kept his commands. But he didn't, so, did, do, he didn't do so perfectly, did he? I mean, I don't know if Isaac was aware of Abraham's failure to protect his mom in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, or if you know about, knew about his little soiree with Hagar, I don't know. But Abraham didn't obey God perfectly. And so what I want to say, dad, mom, whoever you are, if you have influence on children, obeying God means obedience to God in a real way, not in a fake way. So that means when you mess up, when you make a mistake, which you will all the time, you obey God, what God says about repentance. You obey what God says about confession. And you go to your children and you say, Daddy's Sorry. I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. And, it, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And there's just gonna be seasons of your parenting where you're gonna to have to say sorry a lot. But what you're doing is you're showing, I obey God. When I mess up, I obey God. Don't paint this fake picture that mom and dad are great. We have everything together. Because that'll teach your kids the wrong thing about the gospel, the wrong thing about Christ. But just be real. Obey God. Teach your kids that we obey God even when it's hard, even when we have messed up, and it will be easier to lie. It will be easier to do the wrong thing. Those are a couple practical ways. So you will show your kids you love God most, and that's what the first point is. Teach your children, show your children that you love God most, and then secondly, teach your children that God loves them most. So not only do I love God most, but God loves you most. This is something a child needs to learn, and This day on Mount Moriah, Abraham shows his son Isaac this. He shows him, yes, his faith, but he does something amazing, absolutely beautiful, and unknowingly, Abraham gives his son Isaac a little scandalous snapshot of a father-son situation many years from then that will happen on a mountain. And the reason that God commanded something of Abraham so shocking is that very reason that we are supposed to be shocked when we read this scripture and we connect the dots between Abraham and Isaac and Jesus Christ. And it is shocking. We need to consider this. Because a father sacrificing his son has never been God's will except once when it was. These crucifixion overtones in Genesis 22, you can hear them Did you notice when we were reading through the scriptures, a father and his only beloved son, the long walk up a mountain, a son carrying wood, a willing sacrifice, a substitute. Even the mountaintop itself, many scholars believe Mount Moriah is the very place that Jesus died on the cross, Calvary. But here's the scandalous part of the story. If you go to the crucifixion of Jesus, just before that, Jesus is submitting himself to the cross and he pleads with his father in Gethsemane. He says, Father, if there is any other way, if there's another way, would you please make that way? Deliver me. I don't, the, the human part of me does not want to go to the cross. Deliver me. Except he's not delivered. Except when he cries out, He does say, your will be done, not mine. And God makes it clear that his will is for him to go to the cross. Because, see, there had to be a sacrifice. And Isaac could not be that sacrifice for us. And you and I cannot be that sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. The perfect son of God. So if it is unimaginable to think about Abraham, who is a sinner sacrificing his son Isaac, who is also a sinner, it is far more unimaginable that the holy God would actually sacrifice his perfect, obedient, beloved son, Jesus Christ. There was no ram in the thickets for Jesus that day. There was no substitute for Jesus because Jesus is the substitute. And the shocking nature of this should grab you when you say, I can't believe God would ask Abraham to do this. No, I can't either. It seems totally wrong. It seems very scandalous. And yet that's what he did with his son. And that knife was not stopped. He took the life of his son then gave him life again and resurrected him. If our children can grasp this this scandalous love of God and and see it in here, see it on the pages of Scripture, if they get this, that this is not primarily about rules and about traditions, that, that it's not really about about us it's about this this god who pursues this god who holds nothing back with reckless abandon comes after his children if they can get that they'll be okay i want my daughters to get that i don't want them to see this this list of things to check off i don't want them to to think that it's about looking a certain way so that people like them or that if they perform they'll make mom and dad happy that's not what i want them to think about christianity I want them to get that this is about a God, a God who's the only one who knows them intimately and loves them, and he loves them more than anyone else. And this is really critical for for children. This is critical for parenting. There are so many competing loves in our world today. Your child is growing up with all of these things, trying to vie for their attention. I mean, one day, each of my daughters, I'm guessing, will have a man who will come and want to marry them and profess love for them, and he might love them. He might not. I'll be the judge of that, right? But one thing I know is that they will not love them like God loves them. God loves them so much more than their future spouse. God loves them way more than I could love them. So this is, this is kind of critical. If a kid can get this lodged in their heart, if they can understand, I have a God who loves me most. No one else loves me like God What's going to happen is as they struggle to find their social place in school, and they will. Even if they can't balance their checkbook one day, and I hope my kids can. You know, even if they are not shining stars in the workplace, they're going to be okay. Because they know that God loves them recklessly, that God loves them so much that he would take the life of his own son. How do they know that God loves them most? How do they know that even if everyone in school rejects them, God loves them? Jesus Christ. They see it in the pages of scripture all the way back in Genesis 22. I want my kid to learn that God sees them just like he saw Isaac that day. That though they will never be called to this type of obedience, they will be called to obedience and they will be called to obedience in very difficult situations where God is asking something of them and it seems maybe unreasonable and they don't know how they're gonna do it But you know what's going to happen? God is going to provide because he is that kind of God. He's the God who provides. If they can know that God sees them, that God provides for them because God provided his son, Jesus Christ. That 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 provision makes all the difference in the world. If I have Jesus, I have forgiveness of sins, I don't need anything else. I don't think Abraham and Isaac fully grasped what happened that day at Moriah. I, I don't believe they had all that revelation. But we know now And we can't just read these scriptures with our kids and say, you know, Isaac was really obedient. You be really obedient. This is kind of unique. But what they can understand is as excruciating as life may be, if I obey God, he loves me and he's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of me. That's parenting for the next trillion years. Because if you think about this, after this life is over, And we're going to stand there and we're going to worship this God for trillions and trillions of years. And the only way that I'm standing there next to my children, that we're there together, is if we embrace the provision of Jesus Christ. If we get that this whole book, this whole thing is about Jesus. The parenting is about God. It's about Jesus. If they get that, if they see that mom and dad love Jesus, they'll embrace Jesus, Lord willing. And that we'll stand next to each other and we'll worship this God forever and ever. This God who provides and we'll remember the provision of Jesus Christ. And that will be the best end result of parenting. I promise you, in a trillion years, it is not going to matter much if your child made the traveling baseball team. It's just not. And I know it matters now. I get that. I understand. We we have dreams for our kids. We have goals for our kids. Totally fine. But it's just not going to matter that much in a trillion years. I was joking with somebody yesterday about the the trophies I have from high school and like, what do I do with them now? Like, they're worthless to me now. (laughs) I'm 40, it's time to probably get rid of them. It's not gonna matter if your kid was valedictorian a trillion years from now. And I hope your child is valedictorian, unless they're up against my kid, then maybe not, but. It's not even gonna matter if your child is your pride and joy or if they're an embarrassment to you, a complete embarrassment, if they will embrace Jesus Christ at some point in their life and they will, they will lay themselves before him and say, Jesus, it's about you, that's what's going to matter for a trillion years. When they see the Bible not just as like a moralistic storybook but Jesus on every page. So parents, let's show our kids that we love God most and let's teach our kids God loves them most.